I was going to say a whole lot about the teacher's workshop and appreciation dinner, and David already said some things, and so I won't belabor that. I was also going to add, as he did, that um, if your spouse has taught here, then you're welcome to join them, and I was going to say this, um, you can't get to heaven based on the activity of your spouse, but you can get into the teacher's appreciation dinner on Saturday evening, and so we hope and pray that you will be there and be a part of those things. Appreciate Brennan's lesson this morning and his thoughts relative to the latter portion of the book of Ephesians, and I hope that we were paying attention as God's people and we were listening to what our call is because of that exalted position. We'll continue our discussion tonight uh, in the context and down the avenue of prayer. Um, Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. That third word, that word petitions or intercessions, it's found there in the New King James, is a, is a part of our prayer life. In fact, I would suggest that prayers of intercession make up the majority of the prayers that we offer. Because prayers of intercession can be prayers of deliverance, they can be prayers of strength, they can be prayers of forgiveness, they can be prayers for healing, but they're about somebody else. In fact, in the verse itself, it kind of clues us in as to what we mean by that. These types of prayers are made on behalf of all men. Just a few thoughts before we look at our, our text tonight and, uh, and launch into our study relative to this idea of intercession. The word itself means to plead a cause, state a case. It's used outside the prayer context in the New Testament, particularly in Acts chapter 25 and verse 24, when Festus is talking to Agrippa about Paul. And he says that the Jews pleaded for him, for them to take care of Paul, to get rid of Paul, to do away with Paul. He, he, he stated a case. They stated their case. They pleaded. They argued. They they. they, they brought their case before the one who had the authority to hear it. Now, in a, in a sense of prayer, it's, uh, intercession can, it not, it's not usually, but it can be negative. For example, in Romans 11 and verse 2, the Bible speaks about how Elijah pleaded with God against Israel. That he argued a case, but that case was negative. He wanted God to, to uh, act in a negative way toward his people rather than in the affirmative. However, usually, when we talk about prayers of intercession, we're talking about those requests that we take to God on behalf of someone else. And when we do that, friends, that makes us Christ-like. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 that Jesus lives to make intercession for the saints. And so when I engage in this type of prayer, when someone says, hey, I need you to pray for me, or pray with me? Or can you add this person to your prayer list individually or to your prayer list collectively as a congregation? And we take that responsibility on ourselves. We are acting in the spirit of and by the example of Jesus Christ. Prayers of intercession then are very, very important. Tonight, I want us to highlight a couple of Old Testament contexts, however, and consider a couple of prayers of intercession. The first of those prayers is found in the scripture reading, or at least in the context of our scripture reading, in Genesis chapter 18. It's one of the more interesting exchanges between heaven and earth and all the Old Testament. I hope that you have at least some background into this particular text, and if you 
If you don't know that you do, you probably will find that out when we begin to rehearse just briefly the details of the chapter. It, it, it takes place just before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Matter of fact, God says, I, I'm going to destroy Sodom, but I need to talk to Abraham about it. That alone is fascinating to me, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. And it's the occasion where, where Abraham begins to argue with and bargain with God about saving Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, will you not spare the city for 50 righteous? And, and the Lord said, okay, for 50. And then he, he dropped the number to 45, and God agreed to that. He dropped the number then again to 40, but he couldn't find 40. And then 30, and he couldn't find 30. And 20, and he couldn't find 20. And 10, and he couldn't even find 10. And eventually God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But that, that exchange was an exchange of intercession. It was pleading someone's case. It was asking God, in this case, not to do something that God had determined he was going to do. To, to, to withstay the wrath that God had built up against Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness and for their sin. And Abraham was the, the point of intercession. He was the one pleading on behalf of his people. Now, I will tell you this. Abraham is probably not the most notable Old Testament character to be a person to intercede for his people. I would dare say that Moses would be at the top of that list. But this particular account is pretty important because the one we want to contrast it against happens years down the line in a book in the Old Testament far away from the book of Genesis. So think with me about the book of Jonah for just a moment, and particularly the prayer of Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. If you have your Bibles and are, and are there in, in, in Genesis 18, you, you can, if you would like, just, just make a note there, Mark, uh, put a... Put, put a pen there, and, and we'll come back to that. But in the book of Jonah, there is a, a, an, an interesting conversation that God has. Again, one of those, those contexts that probably, uh, a little bit like the, uh, the book of, of Genesis, particularly Genesis chapter 8 that we might be, uh, or 18 that we might be familiar with, but Jonah is pretty familiar to us, and we're familiar with pretty much the whole story. Because it's short and it's memorable and, and for some reason we can't forget what Jonah does at the end of this book. At the end of the book, Jonah's outside the city and the Bible says in verse 2 that he prayed to the Lord. Now, he also was praying a prayer of intercession. Now, that prayer, though, was different. In fact, the difference in that prayer is going to be the heart of our message tonight and the springboard for our discussion in Bible class on Wednesday evening. But, but that difference, is going to, we're going to save it for a moment. You see, Jonah had been called by God to go preach to Nineveh. He had ignored that request. In fact, he had gone the opposite direction to, to, to lay down in a ship and, and to get away to not speak. And God caused this great storm, which caused them to throw Jonah overboard. The great fish came and swallowed Jonah up. He spent three days in the belly of that fish praying to God. When he was spit out, God gave him the command again to go. And when he did, he was successful, at least from our vantage point. He was wholly unsuccessful from his own vantage point. Because whereas Abraham wanted God to save Sodom and Gomorrah, Jonah wanted God to destroy Nineveh. And he prayed this prayer of angry intercession in chapter 4 saying, Did I not say this? Is this not the reason I didn't go in the first place? I, didn't, I knew that you would do this because of who you are. Now what I want to do for a few moments tonight is look at the comparisons particularly the similarities between these two prayers of intercession between these two contexts where these individuals went to God on behalf of people on the earth and we're going to take those and compare those to how we intercede for people today and then finally at the end notice 
the one major difference between these two texts. First of all, both of these texts, these prayers of intercession, involved the wrath of God because of sin. In fact, there's very similar language that's used in the Scriptures to reveal the opening of both of these stories. The Bible says in Genesis 18 and verse 20 that the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Listen to Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. You could actually interchange the language of Genesis 18 with Jonah 1, and they mean the same thing. God said, listen, I've been watching, and I've been looking, and I've been listening to the things that are going on, and their sin is too much for me to turn against. It's too great for me to ignore any longer. I must act. Now, in the case of (coughs) the Genesis account, God goes on to say, I'm going to go down and look. That's a pretty common theme throughout Genesis when it comes to wickedness. I'm going to go down, I'm going to look, I'm going to see for myself, and if I find what I find, I'll, I'll, I'll do what I said I was going to do. It doesn't matter how he termed it necessarily. Both of these contexts deal with the fact that God had watched and heard the sin of these two places, one a, a, a city that represented a nation and one city that just represented a plain, and their, their sin grew before God. It tells me something about God that is very important. It tells me that God is listening and watching and surveying at every point in human history, isn't he? He sees and he knows that that our righteous works will build up, that our sin will build up, and he's going to reward accordingly. That's the God that we serve. And in these two sessions of, of intercession, these two prayers of intercession, we find both involve the wrath of God because of sin. Number two, they both involve men who were supremely trusted by God. They were supremely trusted by God. Look back at the Genesis account again and look at what God says. I mentioned this just a moment ago. It it actually, it leaves me somewhat speechless to think that this is God's opinion of Abraham and Abraham's involvement. Here's what God says. Should I, verse 17, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Who's Abraham? Abraham. You know, we, we so often highlight the idea that God could have used anybody to do anything, that God doesn't need any of us, and, and there's a portion of that that's true. But did you hear what God said? Should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Well, you have the right to hide it from Abraham. God, you're God. You made Abraham who he was. You've given him what he has. Certainly you can do it without talking to him. But God says, I'm going to talk to him anyway. Why? Because Abraham will be a great and mighty nation, and in him all nations of the earth will be blessed. I've chosen him. And he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. God says, listen, I've entered into a partnership with Abraham. I've befriended him. I've blessed him. I've brought him in. I'm not about to go do this and not talk to him about it. I, I don't know if there's ever another human being on the earth outside the one who was both God and man that God felt an obligation to talk to him and inform him of what he was going to do. God trusted Abraham. We know that here because of what God said. We know it about Jonah because of what God did. It may not jump off the page at us in, the, in, in Jonah's book that God trusted him like it does in the story of Abraham in Genesis 18. But he did. 
After all, this was a, a, a monumental task to go to Nineveh and preach. That takes a special and important prophet. But not only that, when Jonah decides not to go, God works in his life to get him to go anyway. I mean, weren't there other prophets? Weren't there more willing men? Wasn't there someone else that God could have, could have sent? I mean, Jonah didn't go and then slept in the boat and then was swallowed by the fish and then still had to be told again when he, when he, when he was spit out to go. And yet God continually pushed him toward Nineveh. Now, I'm not going to speak to his character or credentials like God did about Abraham because I don't know them. And I don't know why it was so important that Jonah go and why he was so important, but I do know this. If God took at least four decisive actions to get Jonah to Nineveh, God wanted Jonah to go. He was important to the story. He was important to the completion of, of God's plan. And so we then learned that both men were supremely trusted by God. Number three, when we compare these two points of intercession, we know that both of these men knew the character of their God. Jonah says it in Jonah 4.2, you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from calamity. I knew you to be that God. You know that there's nothing that Jonah said in Jonah 4 2 that was wrong. In fact, it was spot on about the character of God. It sounds almost like what God said about himself when he revealed his name to Moses as he passed over the mountain with Moses hidden there inside. This is who I am. And Jonah understood that. He got it. In fact, I believe he got it not just from, from book knowledge, he got it from experiential knowledge. Here's a man who deserved death and would have died had God, not, had God not prepared the fish and would have died had God not then commanded the fish to spit him out. Here was a man who was only alive to preach because God had been gracious to him and kind and turned away from his anger. He knew that. Abraham knew it too. I, I know he couched it differently, but that question, will not, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham asked that question because he believed God was about to do something that wasn't in keeping with his character. Are you going to make the wicked just like the righteous and the righteous just like the wicked and destroy them all together? If you are, you won't really be the, the judge of all the earth and you won't be just. I don't know if Abraham thought he needed to stop God from doing something that would have violated God's nature or if it was just him thinking out loud. But both of these men knew intimately the nature of their God. Number four, both of these men were bold enough to argue with the creator of heaven and earth in their prayers. Oh, you can talk about the, 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 the story of, of Genesis 18 being a bargaining session. But really, what is bargaining when you come down to it? You're arguing over a price, aren't you? You're arguing back and forth over, over where you're going to settle because one has a point here and the other has a point here. And if you bargain, maybe, maybe you meet in the middle, but you still argued your way there. And Jonah, the, the complaint he leveled at God is the height of argumentation from earth to heaven. Now, what's interesting to me is both of these men live through the ordeal. Both of these men actually are breathing at the end of the story, which indicates to me that what they knew of God and what God had, how much God trusted them gave them the currency 
to be able to have that discussion. Do we appreciate that in our own prayer life? I know we haven't made a lot of points of application. We, we will in a moment. Sometimes we resign ourselves to just say, I'll let God do what he's already planned to do and what he thinks is best, and, and I'll just wait and see what happens, and I'll, I'll adjust accordingly. And, and we attribute that to faith, and, and part of it is, but, but part of it is, could, could be considered a little bit of cowardice. These men were bold enough to say, you know, I don't think that's the way it ought to be done. And what if we tried it like this? Not because they were arrogant necessarily, not because they were rebellious necessarily, but because they knew their God and their God knew them. And friends, our prayer life might change if we prayed according to God's loving kindness and abundant mercy and, and didn't pray simply out of fear or concern that everything's already been decided anyway and there's nothing my prayer life can do to alter it. Or, or, or to add to it or change it. Both of these men argued with God. And finally, both of these men were concerned about the future. They were concerned about the future. Abraham, we know what his concern was, right? Lot was there. His family was in Sodom. And if you do what you said you were going to do, my family stands in danger. Don't do it. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that Jonah was worried about the same thing. It was the enemy on the horizon that was going to defeat the rest of Israel or Judah. Take them captive and, and humiliate them and, and, and beat them. Was it not Nineveh? And Jonah says, listen, if you do what you say you're going to do and you relent from, from punishing them, my family is going to suffer. They both prayed those things because they were worried about the future. Let's stop for just a moment. Let's look at some of these things that relates to our own prayers of intercession. Why do we pray prayers of, of intercession? Why do we plead the case of someone else before God? Number one, because we understand the magnitude of God's wrath against sin. We pray for spiritual strength for people, for forgiveness for people. We pray that they will come back to the Lord when they've gone away. And, and we pray for their restoration and their, and their salvation for the first time. Why do we do that? Because we understand that as their, as their sin comes up before God, there comes a point in time in which God will punish that and they will not be able to come back, particularly as they leave this earth to stand before Him in judgment. In fact, if our prayers of intercession only involve the sick, if they only involve financial concerns, I'm not sure that we pray prayers of intercession with a full understanding of how true and real sin is in people's life. It should reflect that. Number two, our prayers of intercession can only be offered because God trusts us so much. Did you notice what he said in 1 Timothy 2? I command you, in essence, that prayers be made everywhere on behalf of other people. God has called us into partnership with himself through prayer. Just like he called Jonah into partnership and just like he called Abraham into partnership. When I refuse to pray for other people, when I refuse to offer those prayers of intercession, I'm refusing to take my part in the plan that God has orchestrated. But when I do take that part, I realize how much trust God has in me. I can't explain that trust by the way that he has in me any more than I can explain the trust that he had in Jonah. But he has it. And he wants me to partner with him. Prayers of intercession will only be offered when we understand the true heart and nature of our God. 
that he longs to bless and he longs to forgive and he longs to heal. And we'll pray those prayers. Sometimes our prayers of intercession should be marked by argumentation. By pleading our case, by bargaining to a degree. And our prayers of intercession will only be real when we give great thought for the future. Now, the heart of it all, though, is the difference between the prayer of Jonah and the prayer of Abraham. And that is this. Abraham genuinely loved the people for whom he prayed. And he could not imagine those people dying under the wrath of God's hand. And so he prayed. And Jonah, he genuinely hated the people he prayed against. And he could think of no better end for them than for them to die under the wrath of God's hand. So how are my prayers of intercession going to make a difference? I can do all of these things we've already talked about, but until I pray, out of genuine love for the lost and for souls and for the future, I'll never be the intercessor that God wants me to be. That's going to take work, isn't it? It's going to take effort. It's going to take, it's going to take dedication. A lot of ways we could apply this. Obviously, when it comes to praying for our enemies, we understand that there needs to be a genuine love for their soul before we'll pray for them. But I think if you back off of that a little bit, because there are very few people, and they may exist, and that's another lesson for another time. I think there are very few people in this world that we, gen that we might say that we genuinely hate over the course of our life. Now, we can speak in, in Christian terms and say, I hate no one, I love everybody, but we have emotions, and they're strong sometimes, okay? But there are very few of those people we encounter. But for the people that, that fit that category, let's leave them for another time. Let's think about everyone who falls into the category of people we don't necessarily love. There's a whole lot of those folks, aren't there? I don't mean in a general sense, I know I'm supposed to love everybody. I mean people that we genuinely don't, don't, don't think about and, 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 and contemplate and meditate on that we want them to go to heaven. We don't, don't want them to be under God's wrath. And we just gen generally don't think about their future. And so we don't make intercession on their behalf. Maybe it's neighbor down the street, co-worker. Maybe it's people in our lives that we know that we have affection for, but we have not learned to agape them. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's an elder in the Lord's church. Maybe it's a preacher. Or certain church member that I've just never really gotten along with. And I don't find myself praying for them because I don't really, if I were to be honest and listed, I don't love them like I love this person over here. You ever had someone ask you to pray for them and you found it hard to do so? Not because of any animosity or ill will, but you just didn't think about it. You just forgot. But think about that person that you've known since you were a child who you go hunting with or on vacation with or you go out to eat with and that person says pray for me do you, do you forget that what's the difference what's the difference in the intercession you make for that person who would be your best friend as opposed to that person who just sits across the auditorium i would suggest the genuine difference is genuine love 
I have such a strong attachment to that person that I would never forget their need for me to pray for them. But if I don't love them and their, their, their situation, their future, their concerns don't cross my mind, I'm probably not going to make intercession for them. When we think back to the text at hand, the one from the New Testament, 1, Peter chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, do you remember what first group of people he said to pray for? How will the intercession be made for, do you remember? Kings. And for all those in authority. Now, for all those in authority, we could list from our, our government standpoint, we, we could talk about national officials or, or state officials or local officials. We could talk about those who sit in the Oval Office as president and those who serve in the House of Representatives and those, those that, are, that are lawmakers. We could, we could go the gamut. Here's, here's my point, and uh, I have nowhere to go when I say this, so I'll be right in front of you to say it. If I spend my days bashing and belittling and mocking our leaders, it's going to be hard for me to say genuine prayers about them when I go to bed at night. I'm going to find myself where Jonah is and not where Abraham is. And friends, that's our responsibility. That's our task. You see, there actually might be things I have to stop thinking and things I have to stop doing and things I have to stop writing if I'm going to be the intercessor that God wants me to be. I will that, that intercession be made for all men, especially those in places of authority. Friends, that's our responsibility. God trusts us. He's called us into partnership without genuine love. Not for the party platform of that person and not even for their future job, but for their soul standing before God. If I truly love them, then I can pray for them. If I hate them, that is, if I enjoy mocking and belittling and ridiculing and shaming them, it's going to be very hard for me to intercede on their behalf. And if I do, if I do, I believe our Lord will see that as one of the heights of hypocrisy in modern Christianity. Genuine intercession comes from genuine love. And we need to be the kind of people who can pray for all men. That's our lesson tonight. Feels like the end of a Bible class rather than the end of a sermon. So I'll just say this. If you come back Wednesday night, it'll be a Bible class and we'll talk more about it. But now we're going to extend the Lord's invitation. To any and all who've never obeyed the gospel, for those who've gone away and need to come home, for those who have a prayer request that we might intercede on your behalf, for those that are simply struggling with life and need encouragement. But he mentioned this morning that for many of us, this calendar year has not necessarily started off great. There's been difficulty. And perhaps for the first 19 days or so of this year, you've carried that burden by yourself. Please don't leave here with it. Share it with us that we can pray for you. That we can be there tomorrow and the next and the next day to know that you're struggling. If you've never obeyed the gospel, what better time than now? To put Jesus on in baptism, having repented of your past sins, confessed his deity before these witnesses. Whatever your need is, we plead with you. And then we will plead for you if you will come while we stand and sing.